Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Shiloh Brooks at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I'm Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We are continuing our work through Xenophon's The Anabasis of Cyrus. We are on to book five, and Shiloh's going to give a recap, and believe it or not, I'm going to ask an opening question. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Brian. This is a really long book and uh, pretty exciting. So it consists of eight chapters, and I'm just going to try to say something briefly about each of the eight chapters. I may not connect them as I give the recap, but we can do that in the uh, in the conversation. So in the first chapter, I mean, the big, uh, the, the big announcement is that they've reached the Black Sea. And they decide to acquire ships. They need provisions badly. Um, Xenophon seems somewhat skeptical of sailing in that chapter. And um, we get the beginning of what will be the theme of the rest of chapter five, which is that there are betrayal and bad decisions by certain members of the army. And that will continue. In chapter two, Xenophon leads half of the army out to where they're camped to get uh, provisions. He takes a fortress with a citadel inside. This is a very exciting chapter. Ultimately ends up setting fire to it. Um, Chapter three, uh, as it turns out, the ships that folks thought were going to come don't come, and um, uh, the, uh, then they end up, eight point, they, there's this number that's thrown out, 8.6 thousand uh, people remain, soldiers remain. Um, Xenophon uh, makes an offering to Apollo in this chapter. He reveals his exile in this chapter. He, purchased, he reveals that he's purchased land uh, and made a, a temple of Artemis. Um, uh, or wants to build a temple and an altar. Um, chapter four, there's these people called them, Jeff, you might have to help me with the pronunciation, Masinosians. Yeah, Masinosians. Thank you. And there's a, they're, they, they're engaged in a civil war and the Greeks go in and ally with one side. Um, but then when it comes time to help the Masinosians in their civil war, the Greeks end up fleeing during the battle, which is odd. This has not really happened very often. I think Xenophon says this has never happened before the entire time we've been marching, the Greeks have fleed. Um, they're the most barbaric people the Greeks have ever met. They have some really weird customs, like they have sex in public. Um, uh, the, the take-home point is that they do, I love this line, they do public things in private and private things in public, according to the Greeks, which I love. Um, in chapter five, um, there's this clever speaker who comes on the scene named Hecatonymus. Is that how you say that? He's a Sinopian. And uh, he and Xenophon go back and forth in a sort of contest of of rhetoric and diplomatic uh, matters. Um, In chapter six, that same man advises the Greeks to sail. And the claim is that ships can be gotten. His motives in doing so are not clear. Um, But in this chapter, uh, Xenophon also says that he had thought he might found a great city. Um, he's then criticized by a number of Greek generals who, in fact, want to sail away and not found a Greek city. And so these generals begin to say, look, army, I can offer you a salary. Um, Xenophon ends up saying that he doesn't want to found a city after all. The barbarians do make good on their promise to send uh, boats. And the Greek generals who offered a salary to the army were, in fact, deceived that that salary would be uh, that they would get the money from the barbarians. The barbarians only sent the boats. Um, then at the end, the generals ask Xenophon to return to Phasis and settle in, in, this, um, in this sort of foreign land that's back down the road the other way. And uh, in chapter seven, Xenophon defends himself against charges that he wants to lead the army back to Phasis. The army is not pleased to hear that that might be the case. This uh, comes out that the generals have some envy of Xenophon. And so 
Um, there's a lot of infighting amongst them. They're trying to sabotage him. They're sowing rumors amongst the men. Xenophon eventually stops the infighting and betrayal in the army with an extraordinary speech. And it's said in chapter seven that the army is then purified. What that means, I think we have to discuss. And then finally in chapter eight, these generals who had been sowing uh, the seeds of rumor, uh, trying to sort of overtake Xenophon and mislead the soldiers, they are fined. And they also try to find um, Xenophon, uh, the, the army. Xenophon gets in some trouble. It's uh, brought up, for example, that he's beaten someone. We talked about this in our last podcast that Xenophon was apparently engaging in beatings. Um, he's called insolent and these sorts of things. He defends these beatings as necessary. And he tells this extraordinary story about this guy that he beat and whether he's better off because he was beaten or not. It's very Socratic. Uh, Socrates could not have done a better job. Um, uh, and so Xenophon points out that you aren't dead, in fact, uh, and now you can actually seek redress against me. So it looks like it worked out for you, because if I hadn't beat you, you would be dead. Um, and then it, it turns out, Xenophon says, look, I do all these good things for you, and nobody ever says the good things I do. And then lo and behold, the soldiers recall all the good things Xenophon has done. So once again, a master leader, uh, Xenophon, um, comes out and blooms in this uh, very uh, tense chapter because the Greek army is falling apart. So Brian, over to you. Yeah, I mean, my question is basically when an army doesn't have an enemy, do they fight themselves? Which seems like the answer is just a yes. And so maybe it's a boring question, um, but maybe we can explore why that is. Like, what I guess, what is it about human nature that when you can cohere around a common enemy, you'll work together? But when you don't have that common enemy, you'll try to look for one and what was an ally before. Well, one place I think we could start would be to talk a little bit about uh, this possibility that arises as soon as they reach the sea, uh, the possibility of sailing away. Uh, there are ships for some of them. And it looks like the possibility of sailing away is primarily the possibility of um, dividing the army so that half would sail away and the remainder would have to sort out what they're going to do with themselves. Um, so one of the first things that strikes me is that this whole book, I think, is set against this backdrop of the continuing possibility that the 10,000 could be divided, that some could have to march home and others uh, could sail home. And with that possibility, of course, uh, the ones who sail home might be okay, depending upon whether uh, uh, the gods or the storms are friendly. But the folks who are left behind to march, they're all of a sudden in a much worse situation than they were even when they were all together but exposed to the enemy. So it looks like in this funny way, the possibility of sailing away can turn your friends into enemies because they can harm you just by departing. How, how's about that as a, as a start, um, this problem that's in the background for this whole book? I, I like that. I, I think there's two things that come to mind. And, and one is this, it's the last line of book four, uh, which has to be in there kind of for more of a reason. It's, it's parenthetical 28. And they're talking, this is at the games. Um, and Xenophon writes, horses also raced and their riders had to ride down the steep bank 
turn them around in the sea and lead them back up to the altar. Many of them rolled over on the way down. While on the way back up against the steeply inclined hill, the horses made their way at barely a walking pace. Then there was much shouting, laughter, and cheering. And I kind of almost took that as when things are easy, when it's a downhill slope, uh, sometimes you're just going to trip and fall because it's, there's nothing to really focus on except not falling, but there's also this winning idea, this idea of getting there first, getting the most benefit. Whereas if you're going uphill, everybody kind of plods along at the same pace. And so I think that we're seeing something similar with the separation of some people on the ships and some people on land that as long as an army can kind of suffer together and no one is reaping any significant benefits more than anybody else and everybody's plodding along at kind of the same pace uphill then you don't really have stumbles or as many stumbles but if somebody is trying to get out in front of others and it's somewhat easy downhill um, then you're going to have some tumbles and you're going to have some horses legs get mixed up and it seems like that's kind of setting up book five because we see, you know, Chirisophus is like, I'll go get some ships. And, you know, he doesn't come back in book five. And then some of the old, some of the, the folks that are older, some of the older generals are put in command of what little ships they have and some older troops and women and children. And as a grunt, you know, you're potentially going, I want to, I want to get on the ship. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to walk. Uh, and so you have this division in the army of who gets what and how their circumstances are. And I feel like that's got to be kind of happening in the background a little bit here in terms of um, what we call it in the Marine Corps, the, um, the Lance Corporal Mafia. Uh, you, you can think of it also as Thersites for our more classically, um, you know, the, the, the folks that have read the, the Iliad is, you know, the Thersites folks are just like, wait, what? We're doing what? You're going you're gonna to do what he says? This is a terrible idea. Uh, and they're going to potentially stir up trouble, even if they're right. Uh, it potentially stirs up some trouble. So that I, I see that kind of happening here. And I'm wondering also a little bit about, you know, in, in, in chapter five, something jumped out at me um, that kind of gets to a theme that's happening in, throughout the book, which is just seems like the Greeks have just kind of accepted to a certain degree at this point their piratical nature and are kind of enjoying it. Um, in the beginning of chapter five, they're going through uh, the land of the Chalabians. Um, and, and it says, these, these were few in number and subject to the Mayanesans. And for most of them, their livelihood came from working, came from working iron. Um, and then they go through the Tiberians. Uh, and the generals desired to attack the fortresses and benefit the army in some way. And they did not accept the gifts of hospitalities that arrived from the Tiberinians. And so that they're making this kind of policy before we get here. That is like, if you give us a market and you let us come through peacefully, then we're cool. But if you don't, we're going to attack. And now we have the situation where the Tiberinians are saying like, here's some stuff, like leave us alone. And the Greeks are just doing the math in their head and going, Ooh, we got a lot of us and not a lot of them. So maybe we should just attack anyway. And so that jumps out because I think that's the first time this has happened, right? That, that the Greeks have just gone, mm, 
let's just let's, instead of accepting gifts, which is according to the kind of piety that they're operating under, we're just going to kill who we need to kill and take what we need to take. Yeah, it, I think the phrase "piratical nature" is is pretty interesting here because uh, they're of two minds about this, or maybe the army's torn over this, uh, and we even get to see uh, a nice illustration of that at the end of chapter one, where they get their hands on a couple ships, and the proposal is to use these ships to seize the merchant ships in the Black Sea that are coming by and increase the fleet until they can get all the 10,000 on, on ship to sail home. And well, two people are put in charge. There's a, a Laconian and there's a, an Athenian. The Laconian leaves. He just gets on his ship and sails away. Uh, but the Athenian actually engages in piracy and tries to bring um, some ships in. So uh, there are some, uh, it looks like the army is now of two minds, if I can put it this way. There are some people who think, uh, it's now every man for himself, really. And what you need is just to see the opportunity for you to get out ahead of everybody else, like your horses rushing down the hill, and one of them is going to win. Uh, and there are other folks who are still saying, uh, no, we all have to pull together, because even though the immediate danger is gone, uh, there will be problems if we don't pull together. Uh, and I think Xenophon is in the second camp. He's in the pull-together camp for some reason. You guys know I'm always trying to make Xenophon into the hero and the ultimate, like, it's like he can see the future or something. Like, I'm always, I have this fantasy of Xenophon having superpowers. It's not far from the, you know, from the truth. But I wonder if you guys think that, um, you know, he gives you this line in chapter one, Jeff, you were talking about chapter one and everyone's like, let's sail. And Xenophon's like, well, what if we made preparations just in case that doesn't work out, <laughs> you know, and you get the sense that he kind of knows what's going on. And there's this line and I was really uh, affected by the force of it. This is um, parenthetical 14 of chapter one. Uh, Xenophon's like, let's make some preparations. And then the army here, the army cried, there's no need to go by land. And Xenophon because he knew their foolishness, did not put uh, anything to a vote, but persuaded the cities to rebuild roads voluntarily. So this scene, because he knew their foolishness, like from the very beginning of the chapter, Xenophon, I think, has a sense for the fact that the army is sort of morally becoming degraded and corrupt or something of this nature, mm -hmm. turning on each other. And so I wonder if that line, the, you know, the fact that Xenophon knows their foolishness does not explain a lot of the weird seeming stuff that he does later on, like wanting to found a city, <laughs> you know, and then, and then deciding um, maybe not to found a city. Jeff, you mentioned uh, I think maybe it was before that you you thought he was sincere and wanted to do this. I don't know. Maybe you don't think he's sincere and wanting to do this. But I, I see this chapter as a chapter that can be read as Xenophon having a sense for the 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 corruption that's going on in the army and putting up big roadblocks and just trying to manage as best he can a such a fire, like trying to put out a fire or at least guide it. Maybe he can't put it out, but just guide it so it doesn't burn the whole forest down kind of a thing. And so all these things that he does that seem like founding a city seems in some ways out of character for the mm -hmm. moderate Xenophon. I wonder if, if some of the things that come up in later chapters and especially his rhetoric and the effectiveness of his rhetoric, I mean, he really turns it on. It's really incredible some of the speeches he makes and the way he turns people around and makes them think the opposite on a dime. And so I wonder if he's not 
if he's not seeing this from the beginning, uh, and then the whole, all the things he does in the chapter can be explained by that. He perceives their foolishness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do think that he sees it from the beginning. Um, and whether that settles the question of uh, his uh, desire to found a city, whether that settles the question of his desire being uh, a local desire motivated by circumstances, or if he has a, a broader desire, that's, that's still an open question for me. But I think you're absolutely right that uh, he is one step ahead of the army. Uh, he sees the signs of decline from the be- very beginning of the book, and he is trying to anticipate and as best he can mitigate uh, these signs of decline. Uh, so one of the things he has to do is he has to just stop people from getting on ships and disappearing as much yeah. as he can. And uh, there are a bunch of, of laws that he has to propose uh, for the, the whole force um, near the beginning of, of book five that he suggests in order to try to keep them together. Um, it's a very interesting uh, sequence. This is uh, in uh, the second half of chapter one. And there's a list and each item in the list is ended with the phrase, um, these measures were adopted, except for one, which is the proposal that they um, set guards for the camp. And there's just silence at the end of that proposal. So it looks like um, this is an indication that there's real doubt in the army that they want to risk their lives or to commit themselves or even to undergo slight hardships in order to protect what they have in common, in order to keep the army together. Nobody wants to guard anymore. Xenophon, as it were, is the sole guard now of the whole army. I like what you said about the every man for himself mentality taking root a little bit in the army. And I wonder if that's kind of what Xenophon is most concerned about. Um, you know, and he kind of brings it up in his speech. I think it's in chapter seven where he's talking about, you know, if I led you to, to face us, um, wouldn't you figure it out when we got there? And I'm just one man and all of you are armed. So how bad an idea would that be? Um, but he also, you know, there's an adage in Marine Corps land of never give an order, you know, is not going to be followed. And so in chapter two, you know, after Xenophon, um, suggest, you know, just having guards, which is a pretty normal thing to do. Uh, he then proposes some ideas on how they're going to coordinate plundering, you know, how like, okay, I know everybody's going to just go out and try to do some plundering. So, you know, we're just going to do a few operational requirements before you do that. Uh, which I think is sensible to some degree, but also is aligning incentives because, you know, in any situation, in any bureaucracy, if you just put a few forms that you're required to fill out ahead of time, then you'll dramatically reduce the number of people that actually do whatever it is that the form requires. And so this is almost like a bureaucratic hurdle for the, you know, Greek army of, all right, guys, if you plunder, you just have to fill out this, you know, TF 64. uh, And then you have to just get it signed by two people. And then you'll have some folks that are interested in plundering that are just like, oh, I'm not doing the paperwork. Don't even worry about it. And so I'm wondering if Xenophon is trying to align incentives around cohesion, but also recognizing where the army is at this point in terms of its lack of unity. And so not saying you're not allowed to plunder, 
but just saying, okay, you guys can plunder, but you have to go through this checklist before you do it. I do think it's a kind of bureaucratic barrier against plundering as if it were trouble for them. I also think it's um, an attempt to manipulate the meaning of plunder. Because if you're a really excellent soldier and you have a bunch of ex excellent military friends and you're quite capable of going out there and taking things from people and taking care of yourself, getting back safely, uh, it makes a difference then if the stuff you bring back, you bring back in secret or if you bring it back openly. It makes a difference whether you understand yourself as uh, executing the operation on your own behalf or on behalf of the whole army. Presumably you have to share or at least register what you brought back with the generals if you're acting on, on behalf of the whole army. So it's not, it's not just a bureaucratic um, obstacle, although it is, it's an attempt to manipulate the meaning of plunder and to try to drag it back to something closer like uh, closer to um, a formal raiding party, an authorized raiding party for the sake of provisioning the, the whole 10,000. Um, the interesting thing for, for me in this situation is I think it's, it's the best soldiers in some respects who are most prone to this kind of degeneration because they're best capable of actually taking care of themselves and going out there and getting their own good uh, without the authority from the generals. Yeah, that's something that it's it's not something I think that comes up in military literature too much. So it's interesting that it comes up here. And it also reminds me of working in counterintelligence quite a bit, which is basically like you select for people that can pretty much talk to another person and get whatever they want. And so how do you defend against having someone that can talk to another person and get whatever they want? Mm -hmm. how how if somebody has that ability do you uh kind of channel it and guide it in a positive direction versus um a not so positive direction mm -hmm. and so we're seeing the same thing here and kind of channeling needs and wants and desires and ability into helping the whole instead of helping just the individual or a small group of individuals within the whole just to uh, interject, that's the description Xenophon gives of Socrates in the memorabilia, right? That he can uh, deal with anybody as he pleases in speech. So Socrates is one of your counterintelligence guys who can get anything from the people he's interrogating whenever he wants for the common good of the military or for his own good, presumably. Xenophon, Shiloh has given us plenty of evidence that Xenophon is like this too. He can do um, very striking things in speech, turn people around 180 degrees from being accusers to being um, thanking for the benefits that Xenophon has rendered them. Uh, and yet Xenophon also seems to be the person who has the common good foremost in his mind, although maybe not exclusively in his mind. So yeah, it's an interesting question. Why is this guy of such capacities um, the one who is really sticking it out as the um, head of the common good of the army. Okay, so now that we're on the topic of Xenophon, I can talk again. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> I, love, love, I love the man so much. We got to solve two, I got, we got to solve two puzzles with the man himself here in this chapter. One is why does the exile come up here? So he says, 
in chapter three, um, parenthetical seven, after Xenophon went into exile and while he was living, etc. So he brings his exile up in the book. Um, this is not, he, this is, this, this breaks the narrative because the exile is not happening like right now in the, in the, in the heat of it with the 10,000. So I'm curious why it's here, right here, right now. He breaks the narrative, talks about his exile, and also talks about buying this land and putting this temple of Artemis there. That seems weird. And then goes back in chapter four, the narrative resumes. Um, so that's my first question. And then, of course, we have got to talk about the founding of the city. Why is Xenophon have aspirations to be the greatest political type of founder? Is Xenophon, Moses, Romulus, Theseus, Cyrus? And then we should add Xenophon. I mean, what is that about? <laughs> you know, because that's the greatest political position a human being can ascend to. And here Xenophon is apparently toying with it. Um, ultimately, it doesn't come uh, bear fruit. But at any rate, to, so those two things, the city, uh, founding the city, and then of course, uh, first the uh, the exile. Do, do you have any sense, either of you, for what that has to do with the events of this chapter? I think the first observation I'd like to make uh, is that I think we're going to have to pause here because I'm hearing myself in the feed. Is your, are you recording on QuickTime? Yep. Uh, is your volume meter all the way down or on mute? There we go. All right, better. I'm not sure. Oh, I see why that happened. Yeah. Um, all right, here we go. So I guess uh, the first observation I have to make about this is that uh, we've had one other violation of the kind of strict timeline um, of the story. There might be more than one, but there's one that jumps to mind immediately. And that's the flashback to uh, the story of how Xenophon decided to come uh, to try to serve under Cyrus. And uh, this had to do with consulting uh, the Oracle and consulting Socrates, maybe even more importantly than the Oracle. Um, and it had to do with Xenophon's motives. So I think these violations of the strict timeline probably are meant to acquaint us with Xenophon's motives. Uh, the second thing I'd point out is uh, the way he gets into the subject has to do with the distribution of funds that were entrusted to him. Uh, one uh, amount of funds that was to be given to Apollo uh, at Delphi, presumably, uh, to be left with the Oracle, another um, amount of funds that is to be given to Artemis. And so Xenophon's been entrusted with money with a public purpose. Uh, and the question is, how does Xenophon behave? Is he the kind of guy you can trust with money? You can give money to him and say, Let, you know, you, use it. Um, uh, for the benefit of the god or the goddess. Uh, and the third thing that strikes me is it's a kind of toy city that Xenophon founds in his uh, house with a temple dedicated to Artemis. The whole community, um, my impression of the story is it turns out that the whole community around is benefited by the presence of this house with its temple. Everybody comes together, there are festivals, it's like a little city, although it's not clear it needs very much military power uh, to protect itself. Um, and it's in the um, lands that are uh, controlled by Sparta. 
So it's far from Athens, uh, indicating that his exile, I guess, was permanent or that he was never reconciled with Athens. So I guess those, uh, those things for me indicate a kind of interest in founding something that has a common good and also his willingness to use money that is supposed to go to the God in a way so that it also benefits human beings by creating a kind of community. How's that for a start as to the significance of this funny flash forward? I think it's good. I like the way you relate what happens in chapter three to chapter six, the founding of the great city in chapter six versus the founding of this little temple community in chapter three. But I still, what I still don't understand is that um, Xenophon wants to tell this to the reader here. And, and it's, it's not something the men at the time would have known because it hadn't happened yet. And so I'm curious how, and again, I don't, have a, I don't have an answer to this, but I'm curious why or how Xenophon, the master writer, you know, knower of the human soul, literary genius, what is, he, what is he trying to make the reader think or feel about him? I mean, Jeff, you point out, okay, well, Xenophon's clearly a guy who can be trusted with money or something like that. But I just wonder why break the narrative here and say, and say, when you're writing this, look, I need to stop and I need to tell the story about my exile and that I actually spent honest money because I want my reader to know that now and, and going forward too about me so that that changes the way they look at me in a way it wins us over, you know, by chapter eight, I'm rooting for Xenophon whenever they're trying to hold his feet to the fire, you know, and I, of course I know he's going to get himself out of it with a, with an awesome speech. That's also hilarious. And he does. Um, but, but I'm, I'm endeared to him because in a way he's shown me he's an honest, good faith man, you know, or something like that. I'm rooting for him morally at the time. And I also think it's a crime. He's been exiled. You know, I'm, I'm, if I don't know anything about the history of, of the man and I'm reading the book, if I read that line after Xenophon went into exile, I would be, I would be scandalized because this man is, is made himself into the hero of this book. And now I find out it, say I had never studied the history. He, he's, he's been exiled. What, what, <laughs> you know? And so it just makes the affection, my affection for the man is altered some at this, at this moment. And I imagine a reader who didn't know him as well as, as we or I do would, would have even more sort of, uh, of a reaction. Well, when I was, when I was reading that chapter three <clears throat> and, you know, it opens with Chirisophus had not returned. Uh, you know, so that this this kind of co-leading general, Chirisophus has been at the front of the column for since the beginning of the march. Xenophon is in the back. Now Chirisophus has disappeared, says he's gonna bring some ships back, and, and this says he has not returned. Um, so instantly at this point, having not read the book, having not kind of known what's happening, I'm like, okay, all right. So Chirisophus is maybe not the most reliable, virtuous, you know, successful general. Uh, if he can't pull this off because he says he can. But then it's interesting that right below that in par the parenthetical four, um, you know, they're, they're hanging around, they do a, uh, a parade, you know, that's really just kind of like do some troop counting and figure things out. But at parenthetical four, it says, uh, here they also divided the money that had arisen from the sale of the captives. And the tithe, which they selected for Apollo and for Artemis of Ephesus, the generals divided, each taking a share to guard for the gods. And I just kind of highlighted that and was like, uh-huh. Yeah, they're, they're, I'm guarding it for the gods. It's not, it's not for me. It's just, I'm just holding on to it for the gods. 
and you know, <laughs> have a nice chuckle when I read that because it's it seems very similar to the I'm retiring and I'm going to go work for DynCorp or Lockheed Martin or something like that. Like I'm going to cash in. Um, so that but then you have this flashback or flash forward story where Xenophon actually builds a temple to the gods, right, and has this big open land around it that is full of game that people can, you know, go and hunt to their heart's content. But what's missing here is anything that any of the other generals did with the tithe that they held for the gods. And so by, so initially I'm, I'm a little scandalized that a we're selling captives and B the generals get the money from that, but it's okay because they're guarding it for the gods. But then the only person that seemingly does anything for the gods or for anybody else is Xenophon and conspicuously absent is, oh yeah, and this general also built a temple or this general also, you know, built a, built a school, you know, or something. It's only Xenophon is the person that actually does what the money, or uses the money for what it's supposedly for. Yeah, he's a, he's, he, you trust him after that. You trust him. That, that's what I have in mind. You, he's your teacher now and you trust him in a way that you might not, I mean, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't have before. If you had not known anything about this man, you were just a British gentleman in the 19th century, reading this, translating it, because it's what they make you do in school, and it really sucks. And then lo and behold, you get to this, you're kind of, he's kind of winning you over, and you start to see he's kind of awesome, and now you're just scandalized that he's exiled. I mean, I just think he's, he's doing what Socrates does. There's a certain kind of seduction here, and he's making, he's manipulating your emotions for him so that you will see him in a certain light, and you will be brought to him to learn from him certain things and so anyway i don't want to belabor the point but i i agree with you brian and i'm affected by that literary turn as well and then it colors my my view of the man of course so does you know by the time in chapter six he says he wants to found a great city i mean half of me is like yes xenophon should found a great city he's the, he's the finally he's getting his just desserts you know xenophon founder of a great city but then part of me is like, you don't want to do that, man. Come on. I, you know, you, you don't want to, do it. it's not going to go well. And so I just, I wonder if we could turn to that and, and um, debate what his motives are in saying that, because I can see how that might itself be a genuine desire of his. On the other hand, I can also see how, because he knew the foolishness of the army, he might propose such a thing to make them think a certain thing only to uh, know, in fact, that he, he had no in, real intention of doing that. So I'm curious to get you guys' views on, on that desire of his. Well, if we're gonna look ahead at uh, chapter four, um, I guess looking at the, the preamble uh, to chapter four uh, would be helpful, just like um, looking at the preamble to uh, chapter three was helpful too. Uh, the preamble to chapter three, which was that business about uh, selling the captives and dividing the um, proceeds among the army and among the generals to give to the gods, uh, suggests to me that there was some kind of necessity driving this, uh, that it was no longer safe or no longer wise, the soldiers wouldn't sit for it, if um, the money that they had taken from the captives were just sitting in common it had to be given as pay to the soldiers. So that now all this money is the property of the individual soldiers, no longer the property of the army. And that means that uh, you've got your, your pay, uh, you can uh, now take care of yourself. 
you can uh, make it count for yourself. So there's a kind of uh, necessity to, to divide this, this money that then imposes another necessity when it's done because people are given additional incentives to disappear or abscond. Um, and it turns out that uh, one of these um, uh, you know, private pots of money, not from the sale of the captives, but it's the cause of the betrayal of Xenophon uh, to the army about his plan to, to found a city. So the existence of these little private pots of money in the, in the military uh, in, in, among the 10,000 looks like it's a, a problem and the source of other problems. Um, but I guess the other thing I'd point out at the beginning um, of chapter four is that it looks like there's just no way uh, to keep uh, the Greeks from wanting I'm sorry, I'm talking about chapter five, not four. So after the Mosinetian episode, uh, there's just no way to keep the Greeks off the ships now. And it's in this context that the idea of founding a city uh, comes up. So maybe one way of, of um, making this question pointed about whether Xenophon really wants to found a city is, is he just responding uh, by making up this plan to the impossibility of keeping all the Greeks together any longer because they now have money and there are a few ships available and some of them are gonna sail away and the people who are left behind are going to be screwed. Yeah, I like that. I, I, it, there, there seems to be two things going on. I mean, one thing is when, and this comes up, a lot in Patrick O'Brien. So I'm just going to keep relying on that. But, um, you know, Jack Aubrey, who's the ship's captain is constantly on the watch for paying out prize money too soon, you know, because he's basically like the, the, the sailors are going to go on shore. They're going to kick up Bob Zadian, as he says often, uh, and they'll be penniless, <laughs> uh, relatively quickly. Um, and so that's a constant worry for armies, uh, navies throughout history is if you give the troops money, they will spend it. Um, and they, they will not be as combat ready, shall we say, like right after that. So um, concerning issue. I'm also wondering, and this, this might be tangent, my, my gut is telling me this is related, but I can't figure out exactly how. It's, there seems to be more sacrifices like per page in this book than all the other books that we've had so far. It's almost every, every chapter is, and then they sacrificed and they looked for omens. And I was just wondering if that's related, or if you think that's related to kind of what we're talking about with Xenophon potentially manipulating um, the, the dialogue, manipulating kind of the troops into thinking that there's a plan to settle into a city, but it isn't really a plan. It's, it's really just to make sure that everybody's on the same page and that we kind of hash everything out so that people vote and we go, no, we're leaving. But is, does, is the frequent sacrificing part of that or is, that, is there something else going on with that? I think it's important. And, and, and I think it's important because... Um, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong on this. I mean, obviously the sacrificing itself is meant to draw attention to, um, to the gravity of the decision, but the, the head soothsayer worked for Cyrus and he's got a whole bunch of money waiting for him in Greece, doesn't he? Or something like that. And so when Xenophon's yep. like, let's found a city. And then he, he has to consult with sacrifices with the soothsayer. 
And uh, turns out the sacrifices look good and Xenophon can sort of see that himself. And, um, but then the guy's like, whoa, 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 I see something else in these intestines. There's people plotting against you. You should hold off on founding the city because this guy knows he's got like a bunch of money waiting for him back in Greece. And so Xenophon calls him out on that. <laughs> he's like, he's like, you said that people were plotting against me because you were the one plotting against me because you have an interest outside, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and so, you know, he calls him out uh, on that. And then, um, you know, he very modestly concludes, I myself have given up that other thought about founding the city. Um, and I say everyone else should give it up too. And so, um, just with respect to the question of the sacrifice, it's not the question of the city, which I think we still need to debate. I, I agree with you, Brian, because I think Xenophon is, is trying to manage them or is trying to, you know, make sure that this all goes the way uh, it needs to go, as it, that the right things are read from the sacrifices, I put it that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, also managing what we called rument is something that you have to do as a leader in the military right and that's that's rumor intelligence because especially when you're in situations like this where you're in camp there's not a lot of enemies then basically people are just going to sit around and talk <laughs> and and they're going to talk about uh what's going on in, with the army because that's the necessity um that they're that they're most concerned with you know um i i i would say that when I was, you know, deployed in the past and especially, you know, to places like Iraq, like everybody kind of knew each other's business, right? There, there just wasn't a big real housewives of Fallujah, you know, um, marathon on that often. So people weren't really talking about that. They were talking about what their neighbors were doing and, you know, what their cousins were doing and all this kind of stuff. So being a human intelligence agent in places like that, it was really just kind of parsing through what was true and what wasn't. It wasn't a lack of information. And that struck me as very similar to what happened on base when you're talking about kind of who's in and who's out, who's up and who's down um, and all the different kind of rumors that go through a military camp. And so to be able to manipulate that, which I think that we all think that Xenophon is doing here with the idea of founding a city in order to get them to decide not to do that, to get them to decide like, no, we don't want to stay, we want to go. And to have that be the kind of mass um, buy-in um, versus what we saw in chapter two, which is some people kind of just saying, well, I'm, I'm strong and I can just kind of take what I want and how much that would fracture the army in terms of wanting to get back because there would be people that would just say, well, no, I can just stay here and be the strongest you know, force in this area or wherever we decide to go. Um, so I guess all that's to say, I'm still a little confused about the sacrifices though. I don't know if I have an answer to that yet, but I, I'm still, my brain is still going. There's something else going on here with the sacrifices because you can't, you can't talk about it this much. And I like what you said, Shiloh, about the um, bringing out, and maybe that was it. Maybe it was just a, a workup, a literary workup to that point of the soothsayer is the one that's kind of causing these problems. Um, and if that's the case, great. But I mean, that is the case. Um, but I, man, it's just something, something, I don't know. There's some friction going on in my subconscious about the sacrifices and why they come up so frequently in this, in this book. Well, in this case, it's a real rumint coup, uh, perpetrated by Xenophon, because if I'm, if I'm understanding the suggestion, he stages the sacrifice for the sake of leaking 
this false plan, let's just call it false for now. I think there might be other things to take into account, but this false plan that he wants to found a city, that he's going to lead the Greek army um, to settle down and make a city here in, um, on the shores of the Black Sea um, in order to get the army to be outraged at this um, possibility that they might stay and say, no, everybody has to go home in order to get there to be a law that everybody has to do the same thing so that nobody goes home early, right? This is the thing Xenophon wasn't really trying to stop people from staying. Maybe he knew that he was, you know, that maybe he knew that nobody was really interested in staying where they are. Um, he was interested in getting the army to say, oh no, we're going to deal very harshly with anybody who sneaks off and does their own thing. And that's what he's able to obtain by the end of chapter six. So there it looks like the um, sacrifices are an opportunity to um, stage a counterintelligence operation, right? To float false information through the army to produce a, an effect. Um, more generally, though, I think that sacrifices are an opportunity for the um, army to ask itself how much it cares about being an army as opposed to a bunch of thugs. How much does it care about good behavior as opposed to um, and, and good discipline as opposed to um, raiding and stopping at nothing? Um, and the sacrifices are a kind of um, invitation to reflect on whether the gods would think highly of what you're up to. Yeah, I like that. I, and I think that that brings us back to something that, you know, Shiloh's mentioned in, in the previous podcasts about the Socratic nature of Xenophon, but also the practical uh, military side that Xenophon adds to this, right? Because in some ways, it seems like Xenophon is doing something Socratic and pointing out the logical conclusions of a certain way of thinking or a certain course of action. Um, where he's saying, you know, if you want to stay, we would have to, you know, have a city. We can't just camp out and harass all of the tribes around here because sooner or later they'll band together and wipe us out. Right. So let me show you what that would look like um, in some way. And then, you know, the practical alternative of that is having laws is the then and that's really the end state that he wants to create is just having a set of laws that apply to everyone and not necessarily leaving not necessarily going but just having a set of laws where they will try to make men virtuous and so in in some way that we're going to define that um and but you have to also be alive to be virtuous and so that there's the practicality of survival but also the kind of piousness which comes with living with virtue or something like that, which seems, which seems Socratic. I don't know, Shiloh, you, you, you take a stab at this. This is, this is your beat in the podcast. I'm persuaded. I'm, I'm just... <laughs> I mean, I'm persuaded by what you all say, but there, I still have one lingering question. And that is, so you got, you know, you guys put a nice bow on it in the law. And of course, Zenfon's doing, I think exactly what Jeff says. He's telegraphing decisions far in advance um, like a like a certain kind of genius that he is. But with respect to the way, again, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier about the fact that a reader who didn't know Xenophon was in exile might be appalled. Here, I think he again does something like this because if it's true that he doesn't genuinely want to found a city, well, he certainly sells it to the reader. I don't know how he sold it to the men, 
but he sells it to the reader on two grounds. This is at parenthetical 15 of chapter six, 15 through 17, page 168 of the Ambler. The first claim is that it seemed a noble thing, this is at parenthetical 15, uh, to him to acquire both land and power for Greece by founding a city. So it's for Greece. We're going to do it for Greece. And it seemed to him that it would become a great city because, as he says, there are people, uh, we're here, we're really skilled. These people around us are jokes. Um, you know, we can really get rich and found something and it'll be great for Greece, right? And then um, if you look down, uh, parenthetical 17, he, you know, so he calls on Silenus, who had been Cyrus's soothsayer, um, and parenthetical 17, fearing that this might come to pass and that the army might settle down somewhere, Silenus brought word to the army that Xenophon wished the army to settle down and that he found a city and obtained a name and power for himself. Now, that's the words of this other guy, right, mm -hmm. of Silenus. But as a reader, I'm like, eh, it's not so bad. I mean, as a person with political, I'm like, Xenophon, hey, man, you can found a name and power for yourself. I mean, you're, you're telling me it's for Greece, but let's be honest, Xenophon, it's for you. Come on, man, a founder. And so... Um, Xenophon puts that, you know, that uh, uh, reprobation in the in the mouth of someone else. And so I guess I'm just trying to. Um, and, and so you have to think if a political nature is reading this book, you know, they're going to be like, come on, man, <laughs> this is this is awesome. You can found a city. And so I wonder if Xenoph what Xenophon's trying to do here. I mean, the, you know, I guess an obvious thing is to try to present people like me with tyrannical souls with the notion that it might be choice worthy not to found a city, because the first thing I want to do is found a city and make it called Shilohville, you know, or something <laughs> like that, <laughs> you know, Rome and Romulus. But yeah. Xenophon is like, you know what? It's I, my intention was just to make Greece great. And uh, you know what? Actually, it's not that's not even worth it. it, you know. And so anyway, I'm just trying to kind of think of what effect this is supposed to have, not just in recounting the story, but on the reader who's trying to learn. Mm -hmm. I, I I was just going to say, I have a, a couple of thoughts along that. The first is that I'm not sure there is a Greece, um, maybe generally, but, um, you know, in, in the neighborhood here. Um, we saw in chapter one that the, there was very different behavior from the Laconian and the Athenian captains. Um, I think it was chapter three or four, we got another, maybe five, we got another um, series of games uh, right after they divvied up the, the money and those games uh, were held by, by nations. So the various Greek peoples um, competed against one another. Uh, so Xenophon saying he wants to do this for Greece seems to me to raise the question, which Greeks? Um, that he's going to be in exile and living close to the Spartans, as we get told in, in chapter three, um, it seems to mean that you know, the Athenians are upset with him for some reason. Uh, there is no unified Greece, I think. So uh, maybe just one more thing. What does this um, city look like? I think in some sense, if they set it up the way he proposes, uh, it could be a, a very Spartan city with very um, strong laws because it's going to be surrounded by enemies. It seems like everybody around them wants the Greeks just to leave, either sail away or march away, but just move on. Uh, and presumably the founding involves taking land and maybe women, uh, certainly resources from neighboring states. They're just going to be fighting all the time. It'll be like the period of survival that we had in book four. And that's conducive to highly law-governed behavior, as we saw, right? Good discipline, because you think you're going to die 
if you go outside of the walls, somebody's just going to kill you. Uh, that leads to, you know, a lot of courage, a lot of discipline. But is that the way Xenophon wants to live? The house that he sets up um, in Sparta, you don't have to live that way. You don't go hunting savage beasts. You hunt gazelles or whatever it is, right? <laughs> these, these relatively uh, innocuous animals. Uh, it's much more pleasant and bucolic. Uh, you don't have enemies right at the gate. So there might be a disproportion between the kind of city he can found, given the circumstances, and the one he would found or would want to found if he could found one. Um, and maybe the last word is uh, the Masonicians seem to me to have something to do with this too. Uh, they can live out there. Um, and they're very strange and different from the Greeks. Yeah, I like that. I, I would just add um, that maybe the, the book before where we saw what happens when they're surrounded by enemies and where resources are scant, um, that that requires a ruler who's not afraid to beat you for your own good. Whereas, you know, I don't think that when you're frolicking with the gazelles or, you know, having festivals in the, in the temple that you have much fear of getting beaten by the ruler. But in the in the city that they're at least the policy balloon uh, is floated of this city here, and I want I want to I know we're like over time here, but I'm I there's got to be a Machiavelli tie-in with like floating this policy balloon, like leaking something to the New York Times about a new policy that hasn't come out yet, and then you know just absorbing the feedback from that. Like there's I'm trying to think back of you know Rument and Machiavelli. I don't know if anything's jumping out at you guys right away, but. I feel like you guys, you guys do great Machiavelli tie-in. So I wanted to tee you up if, if there's something there. Well, Machiavelli claims to have learned a lot of what he knows, maybe the majority of what he knows from having read people like Xenophon. Uh, and so maybe one of the questions would be, well, was, was Machiavelli interested in founding a city? Uh, he certainly was interested in the greatness of his own city uh, in reforming the Florentine militia. But his ambitions look like they were not, maybe the way to say it is not restricted to founding a city. Uh, and so maybe there's some light that uh, Machiavelli learned from Xenophon in which founding a city is um, too small a project or too constrained a project or too subject to necessity or something like that. Interesting. Well, we, we are at time. So... Uh... Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Shiloh. Appreciate it. Another book in the Anabasis down. Readers, you can uh, hit us up on the Instagram and on the Facebooks and on the Twitters. We're on all that stuff at Combat and Classics. If you have a question for us, uh, feel free to us up and we will be back shortly with uh, book six in the Anabasis. Thanks, fellas. Yeah, thank you both. Thanks.